Today is part two of what we started last week, which was God's design for marriage. And I want you to think about marriage as more than just two people sharing a life together. Because scripture paints such a bigger picture than that. In fact, did you know that scripture tells us the Christian marriage is a picture of the marriage of Jesus to his church? So your marriage, all right, so take you and your spouse right now, put a picture frame around your faces, and your marriage is to be a picture of the way Jesus loves us as church. And so as we live our lives and reflect him, what does it say to our community? What does it say to your relatives at that family gathering once a year? What does it say to your children about the way Jesus loves his church? Because the way that you love uh, your spouse reveals the way Jesus loves his church as a Christian in a Christian marriage. Now, they say that a picture is worth a thousand words, right? So think about the words that make up the picture of your marriage. I put some words on the screen here to kind of maybe help you think about maybe some of the things that may be more obvious to other people than the things that we should be conveying and showing to this world. So what does the world see when they see your marriage? Are you painting something that's completely the opposite of Jesus? Or is your marriage reflecting him, reflecting his love, reflecting his goodness? Today we're going to go back to Mark chapter 10, and again in verses 1 through 12, we're going to see how Jesus responds when he's asked about this topic of marriage and divorce. And you've heard the statistic possibly that um, the, in the church, the, mar- the divorce rate is basically the same out in the world. Uh, that's debatable whether it's accurate or not, but the truth is we know that divorce is very high among Christians, professing Christians, just like it is in the world. And if marriage is about painting a picture that delivers you your personal definition of happiness, then you're setting the bar way too low on what you should be expecting out of your marriage. And I'm afraid that so many people, that's their idea of what marriage should be, is it, it delivers to me my personal definition of happiness. And so it only makes sense, even among Christians, if you're not getting fulfilled, if you're not meeting your definition of happiness in your relationship, then it only makes logical sense, right, if that's your goal, that then you're going to be tempted to look elsewhere to meet those needs or to find possibly someone else, or consider divorce an option. And so if your relationship here today, if you're here and you're in a relationship that's dysfunctional, if you're hurting, if it's just not fun anymore, then if you're not rooted in what scripture calls for your purpose in marriage, then maybe divorce seems appealing to you, or separation seems like something that would make sense to you. But if your marriage is about showing the world a picture of Jesus and his love for his people, that's a game changer, isn't it? Why? Because Jesus doesn't forsake his people, does he? Jesus doesn't leave his people. And so as we look through this passage today, I want you to think about your marriage. I want you to think about your purpose in your marriage and what God wants to do in your life to make you reveal that purpose more clearly in your relationships and in your neighborhood and in your life. So let's read Mark chapter 10, verse 1 through 12 again today. And Jesus left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowd, 
crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of the hardness of heart, he wrote you this command. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So when they were no longer, they will be no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Let's pray and we'll look at this passage. Father God, we thank you so much for your word that guides us and gives us truth. And God, the faith that you give all your children here to have faith in your commandments, have faith in your truth, even when it doesn't feel like the right thing. It doesn't feel like the, the, the best thing for us, God, that we trust you and we treasure you because you are a good God and you love us and you care and you want to be glorified in this world. And God, I pray for marriages in here that right now are struggling. Those who are watching online, they're, they're struggling. They know that their marriage is not a reflection of the way you love your church, God. I pray today will be an encouragement to them. It'll be a time for a heart-to-heart discussion among themselves, God, that they can really, truly um, rediscover what they were called to be, a follower of you in the first place, and why they came to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So verse 1, it says, they left there and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. So Jesus and disciples, they leave that north part of Palestine, and they begin to head south, uh, and neither Mark or uh, Matthew and their accounts give um, some chapters that uh, Matthew and Mark, I'm sorry, Matthew and Mark do not give any, any study of the, what happened next. There's like eight chapters or nine chapters that you'll find in Luke and John that tell about some ministry that Jesus did over to the east there, and I'm sorry, the west there. And so that, that's not given in Mark's account. Mark jumps straight into where the bottom arrow is. Jesus begins to minister there beyond the Jordan to the east. And in this area where he begins to minister to them, it says that the crowds gathered as was usual was the custom, and he taught them. And so then you had the Pharisees who came up, and in order to test Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful for him, a man, to, to divorce his wife? And so let's talk about the Pharisees for a second, because we've talked about them, we've mentioned them throughout this book. These guys, the Pharisees, and these were kind of like the antagonists if this was a movie because these guys are constantly a thorn in Jesus' side. And give you a bit of a history lesson here. I know some of you probably hate history, but it's important that you understand the context here in order to understand what's truly going on. Let's remember, in history, who is the empire that's in charge of the most of the known world at this time? It's the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire had granted Palestine, had granted the Jews legal status to be to do their religion Judaism they could practice Judaism and so the Romans oftentimes would retain the culture that was existent there and they would put someone in charge of that area in order to run the affairs and as long as you kind of did things the way Rome wanted them to be done they pretty much left you alone and so by the time of Jesus birth 
the Jews even had their own king, their own king whose name was Herod the Great. He did a lot of things, particularly building projects. And, but everyone knew in that, you know, you, if you were alive, you knew during that time that who was behind the power, who was the power behind the throne. It was the Romans were the power. And so by the time of, that Christ was born, it was an incredible time in history because this was a time of peace and prosperity among the Roman Empire. This was a time where they had in incredible economic prosperity. And so as you can imagine, if you're a civilian, you're a citizen in Palestine, you're a Jew, and all of a sudden things are prosperous, things are good, things are peaceful, it might be easy for you to kind of, you know what, this is not that bad to have these Roman occupiers here among us, as long as they leave us alone and let us do our business and worship God the way that we want to worship them. And so what happened was the Jews began to split into different parties, and you had some parties who basically they collaborated with Rome and they were willing to go along with them for the most part. Other people were separatists. They, they said, you know, we're not we may follow the laws when we have to, but we're pretty much, we, we would love for you to get out of our land. We don't care how prosperous, we just don't like you being here. And then some during that time actually were even advocating for full-armed, uh, full-on full armed revolt against Rome, which would happen later, some years down the road. But the Pharisees, these people we talk about, they were more than just a religious people, all right? They were, they were a political party, per se, as well. And they were the popular, popular party of the middle class. And these guys were great at riding the fence. These guys, when it was advantageous to side with Rome, they would side with Rome, when they needed to, to go the other way and, and, and separate, they would separate. And there were a few things that were really, really meaningful to them. We've talked about this. The Sabbath, keeping the Sabbath was really a big deal to them. Ritual cleanliness was big. And then they kept the Feast of the Old Testament. That was a big deal to them as well. They kept these feasts. And so as long as Rome gave them their freedom and let them do their thing, they were pretty happy with just going and kind of riding the fence there and work along with Rome when it was advantageous to them. So this is the group of people who come to Jesus and begin to test him, and they ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So why was, why was this a test? What were they doing here? Was it a test to see, Jesus, do you understand the Mosaic law? Do you really understand the law of Moses here? But th that wasn't the point. I mentioned this last week. Jesus had already laid it out what his belief on the Mosaic law when it came to divorce and remarriage was. He laid it out in Matthew chapter 5. They, they knew this. So this was more than just what it seemed to be. They were setting a trap. They were setting a test for him to get him in trouble. A couple of different options here uh, uh, that could possibly have been. The first one I'm going to call is a, is a treason trap. They, they thought that they could trip him, trick him, and get him in trouble with Herod. All right, let me, let me explain this to you. So if you remember what we studied in this book so far, that who was doing their ministry in this area where Jesus was down by the Jordan earlier on? Does anybody remember who that was? Who, who the guy was who did his ministry there in that wilderness area? John the Baptist, right. John the Baptist was there, and he was doing his ministry. Why does that matter? Because upon Herod the Great's death, he divided his kingdom out among his children, among his sons. And so when Herod died, his sons each got a different part of the kingdom. And so if you remember back in chapter 6, you had um, Herod's uh, son Philip uh, was married to a woman named Herodias. And Herodias had left Philip, 
and actually then went over and began a relationship with Philip's half-brother, Herod Antipas, who was in charge of this area around the Jordan River where John the Baptist was. So if you put that together, you understand that, you know, um, that, that Herod Antipas hated John the Baptist, right? And he hated John the Baptist because John the Baptist publicly called him out for what this immoral sin that he did, that, that, that Herodias left Philip and went over and then began to hook up with him and, and married him, divorced uh, his brother. And John says, it's not lawful. You, you just can't do that. And he basically called Herodias out as an adulteress. And so Herodias hated John, and she wanted to kill him. And we find out, found out in Mark chapter 6, verse 19, that she actually got her way. It said Herodias had a grudge against John and wanted to put him to death, and she literally got his head on a platter. And, and she was able to, to trick and get him killed. And so I think what's happening here is if Jesus said that divorce and remarriage is not permissible, if he said, no, you, you can't do that, that message would go straight to Herod, and the Pharisees then, they would hope that Jesus would suffer the same demise that John the Baptist suffered because the Pharisees wanted Jesus out of there. They hated Jesus. And so I think that may be what was going on here in the scene behind, behind, behind what's happening here. But it also kind of could have been a theological trap for Jesus because just like today, you had conservative people, you had liberal interpretations of a passage back in Deuteronomy where it talks about divorce and it basically boils down to, we don't have time to look at that, but it basically boils down to what was a justifiable reason for divorce. And the conservative group said only sexual infidelity justified divorce. And the liberal group said that if a wife basically did anything to embarrass her husband, to disgrace him, displease him, then he could divorce her. So about anything was legitimate. And that was the majority view of that time, was a man had the ability to put his wife away about anything, and that's why Herod Antipas was able to get away with his divorce. So what was the trap here? If Jesus sided with the liberal group, then the Pharisees, who were always on the fence, and they could flip-flop whenever they wanted to, they could become conservative and say, no, 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 Jesus is going against the law of Moses. Jesus is against Moses. See, we told you this guy was a heretic. This guy is going rogue. He's not for Moses. And then on the other side, if he sided with the conservatives, he knew that he was going against the public opinion, and against Herod, and ultimately, again, uh, you know, it was a no-win situation, right, for Jesus. Which way was it? They wanted to trap him. They wanted to, to get him to show his cards, per se. And, of course, Jesus, if we've learned throughout this book, he, I mean, he's never concerned about public opinion, right? What's Jesus say over and over again? He's concerned about one thing, one thing alone. He's concerned about doing the will of his Father who's in heaven. I only do what God does. I only do what I see God doing. And so Jesus was about his heavenly father. And so Jesus, obviously, he wasn't going to get caught up in this trap. And I, I love what Jesus did. This is a, a great, if you're ever discussing the Bible with somebody who doesn't believe, somebody who's a skeptic, somebody who's a cynic, Jesus does a, the technique that's really a good technique to do. Basically, turn it back around and ask them questions as well. And that's what Jesus did. He asked them, what did Moses command you? So let's put the ball back in your court for a second. All right, what, you tell me, what did Moses command? What did the word of God say? He takes them back to the authority. And look at verse 4. They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But they didn't answer the question, did they? Yes, they quote Moses, 
But Moses, what Moses said there was not a command, was it? And so the Pharisees showed their hand. They really showed how they interpreted Deuteronomy 24, that you can divorce your wife for basically no reason at all. And that's what really the Pharisees were getting at here. They were getting at, the, the, the question behind the question for them was really, how can you get out of your marriage? How can you get out of your marriage? But for Jesus, he took a much higher approach, and, he, and he's telling us why we should stay in our marriage. Why we should stay in our marriage. Verse 5, and Jesus said to them, Moses gave this concession because of the hardness of your heart. He wrote that command. And so while they were looking for a loophole, what Moses wrote wasn't a command or even an encouragement, was it? It wasn't even an encouragement for a divorce. It was a concession because of the hardness of the heart. So Jesus wants them to answer the question, what did Moses command? And Moses, and Jesus says Moses um, didn't do anything wrong by giving permission in Deuteronomy, but he insists where? They must go back to Moses' words inspired by God in Genesis. And that's what was commanded, and that's what Jesus took them back to, God's original design, his ideal. It was God himself in Genesis 2 who created marriage, who invented marriage, and it was a divine institution. It wasn't created by a human. It wasn't created by Moses. And God's design is very clear. The bond of a husband and a wife creates not simply a partnership or a working agreement. It creates an entirely new entity, a new reality, this one flesh that we talked about last week. Look at verse 6 through 9. But from the beginning, Jesus says, God made them male and female. Two shall become one flesh. So that they are no longer two, but they're one. What God has joined together, let not man separate. So this new reality, this one flesh, God joining a man and a woman in marriage. And so all of a sudden, it's a new entity before him. We talked about that last week. When God sees you and your spouse, he doesn't see two. He sees one. That's a powerful. That's amazing. But look at the warning. It's easy to miss the warning what God gave here in verse 9, what Jesus gave in verse 9. He said, "What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Let no man separate. Think about that for a second. Let's, let's just bring that home really practically. What he's saying is anyone who participates in or promotes the break of a marriage will answer to God, who is the defender of the marriage covenant. Anyone who encourages or promotes the break of a marriage, God says what, what, what God has joined together, nobody should split together, no, let no man separate. And so I, I think the, the word of application for us in here today, married and singles alike, is don't get caught up in an emotional relationship with a married person. Don't begin to develop a close friendship with somebody of the opposite sex. Be really, really careful in those situations. Because too many times it's happened that way, that, that something starts out, it's a slow fade, right? It's a slow fade that, oh, you know, this person just really listens to me well. And my, my husband, you know, they're, they're, he's, he doesn't care anymore. And, and, and there's no intention there at the beginning for anything like that to happen, but it's that slow fade that happens that you begin to 
to make allowances and to give, uh, you know, to, to allow yourself to be on the phone with this person or texting this person, social media with this person. And, and it's little things that build up over time that all of a sudden you begin to justify your behavior. And aren't we all just like experts at self-trickery, right? We're, we're so good at deceiving ourselves, you know, and, and telling ourselves reasons why either this isn't that bad or I deserve this, right? I deserve this or this isn't hurting anyone. And, and, and how many times have we heard people say, you know, I need out of this marriage for one reason or another. You know, it, it's actually better for the kids that I get out of this marriage. Or it's, it, it's you know, my wife's not meeting my needs. Or my husband, he, you know, he doesn't love me anymore. Or your friends are telling you, you know, your relationship's toxic. You need to get out of that. Or, you know, we were married really young. You know, we didn't know what we were doing. So it's, it's okay to get out of this marriage. And then some people have even the audacity to bring God into this and say, you know, I've heard this one in, in my pastoral ministry, I would say three or four times. God just wants me to be happy. God just wants me to be happy. And so that's why I'm, I'm leaving because God, there's no way God could want me in this situation because I'm just not happy. I had one lady tell me, you know, God will forgive me. I'm, I'm going to do this and then God will forgive me. But my, my favorite one is, when people say, we're just not in love anymore. What does that mean? We're just not love, in love anymore. We're not in love anymore. And so you see what we're doing? We're taking that picture, which should be about Jesus, and we've removed Jesus from the center, and we put our happiness, our fulfillment, our pleasure there in the middle, and we want our way over God's way. And we find comfort in this self-deception that we create in our minds. And, and too many people even go to the scripture where they said, look, Moses allowed it. Look, Moses allowed it, so it must not be that bad. But why did Moses allow it? For anyone who wants to use this as an excuse, because of the hardness of your heart. But what I see here in this passage is Jesus is raising the standard for his followers. He's not going against Moses, but he is saying, look, Jesus is God. And he can take this and he can interpret it and he can make it whatever he wants it to say because they are his words originally anyway, right? He was there from the beginning. And so Jesus is holding his followers to us Christians to a higher standard than just saying, you know what, I need an allowance out of this. I need to get out of this. Jesus says, I'm the original lawgiver and I rule the command and so I alone have the right to interpret it. And Jesus says, yes, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses wrote you this command. But look what Jesus says. He says, no, 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 no. Never. Do not divorce. That was not part of the original intent. He says what God has joined, it should be a lifelong bond before, between one man and one woman. And you do violence when you destroy this relationship. You do violence one flesh ripped apart. Jesus' words in Matthew 19, 8, kind of the same, the same dialogue here, but a little different uh, verbiage, wordage on it. He said this, because of the hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. From the beginning, it wasn't the case. God joined you. God married you. Don't let man end that. Don't separate that. And so... Not only is the standard higher for Christians, but I think, and, and this may be reading the text, but I think it, it makes sense, that Jesus 
knew that we were going to have the Holy Spirit as Christians within us. You realize that in the Old Testament, the great figures of the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come upon them. But you have something that they didn't have. David didn't have the indwelling presence continually of the Holy Spirit. That's what the New Testament tells us. It says, Christ in us, right? We, t- we talked about that a lot in Colossians. Christ in us, the hope of glory. We have the Holy Spirit to guide us into truth. We have the co- complete, total word of God that gives us the complete revelation here in front of us. And so Jesus is saying, my followers hold to a higher standard. Christ in us changes everything. And then verse 10, the disciples they ask him again about the matter, you know, they need clarification, and Jesus really just lays it out straight and clear here in verse 11. He says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So Jesus is saying, those who have divorced without proper biblical ground, grounds sin if they remarry someone else. Plain and simple, those who divorce without proper biblical grounds, which we'll talk about in a second, sin if they remarry someone else. Why? Well, step back and think. Again, what's the big picture here? The big picture is Jesus and his love for his people. And so if you are to be a portrait, to be a picture of that, and then you leave your spouse, you divorce your spouse, what does that say? What, what picture does that paint to the world? It says maybe Jesus doesn't love his spouse the way that I thought he did. Maybe Jesus doesn't love the church the way that I thought he did. You see, the, the problem isn't our focus on marriage and, our, and, our, and how much we value marriage. Because at some point you married your spouse, there's high value there. The problem is we lose our purpose, or maybe we never even really realized our purpose in the first place of a Christ-centered marriage, a Christian marriage, if we say it that way. Because probably you weren't told maybe at the beginning when you were doing your premarital counseling or you were talking to a pastor, or maybe you heard it and it just went out in one ear and out the other, that the purpose of your marriage is not self-fulfillment and happiness. See, that's what we think. We think it's about I'm, I'm going to be complete. I'm going to be full. I'm going to, you know, this person's going to complete me. The purpose of a Christian marriage is to reflect Jesus Christ to the world. If you were in the Life Prep U class this morning, we watched the video from Francis Chan, and we talked a lot about this, our purpose in marriage. Most days, we don't walk out of the house saying, man, my purpose today is to glorify Jesus and paint a picture of, for, the, for the world for him. Our, our purpose is getting out the door is to get on, to work on time and we're already thinking about the first three things we have to do. And the last thing we're thinking about is our entire purpose in life is to glorify God and enjoy him. And, th- and that marriage, you enjoy the marriage, you bring glory to God through how satisfied you are with that marriage. And you're both working toward the same goal, the same purpose, which is to further the mission of Jesus Christ. And so it, it just it makes no sense to ever consider divorce as an option, except in a few situations, we'll talk about in a second, if your goal is to paint Jesus as beautiful as you possibly can, which would never ever come close to painting him the way that he is. And so that's what we remember about our marriages. 
And that's why Jesus is so tough on this issue, because the point, the purpose of marriage. And so ultimately, it is adultery because it betrays the truth about Jesus that marriage is meant to display. I think I put that in your notes. Ultimately, it is adultery because it betrays the truth about Jesus that marriage is meant to display. A spouse who would abandon his covenant promise misrepresents Jesus and his covenant to his people. So Jesus never, ever, ever divorces his people, does he? He never forsakes her. He never abandons her. He never abuses her. Jesus always loves his people. He takes her back when she wanders away. He is patient with her. He cares for her and provides for her and protects her and delights in her. That's what Jesus does for his church. It's a game changer when we see marriage the way that God sees marriage. But as long as we're seeing it for our personal happiness and our personal contentment, then it's going to be easy come, easy go. Somebody's out there to make me happier. That sounds good. So I, I do want to say this because as I mentioned in the beginning, we know that in the number this size, 30, 40% of you probably have went through a divorce in your life. And it might cause you to feel like you're permanently disgraced and you know, wow, man, I'm such a failure. But I wanted to remind you that the Bible nowhere calls divorce the unforgivable sin. It, it never says you can't be forgiven if you've been divorced. Never underestimate the redemptive power of God to work in bad situations. I mean, you can think back, some of you are thinking back to the situation of your divorce and how awful and terrible and, and heart-wrenching and painful that was. And maybe you look at your life now and you think, wow, man, God really redeemed this for amazing things. I think about the story of Joseph. I was, we were sharing this with a Bible study a couple of weeks ago with some, with some boys that, that, that Joseph, what, what his brothers meant for evil, that God used for good. That, that God took a situation that from all appearances, when Joseph was thrown into this pit and left for dead and, and stole, sold into slavery to Egypt, that you, you would think that, man, that, that's the worst thing possible. How could any good come out of this boy being sold to Egypt and the atrocities and the horrible things that would happen to him being sent off as a slave? Yet we know the story, many of you know the story, that God took that and redeemed it to deliver his people. And so I, I, I want to be encouraging for you today that even if you've been divorced five times, one time, whatever, that I want you to know that God can redeem your situation. And God loves to take those who are repenting of their, repenting of their sin and, and sorry for their sin and take it and re redeem it for an incredible greatness and goodness. In fact, many of you who've been through a situation like that, if you don't take those things and teach other people and take that to disciple others and help others see what maybe what you went through and the pitfalls and the dangers, then you're not using what God has given you for the fullness of his glory. And so I want you to ask you, how can you take the pain that you went through, even if you were the one who was in the wrong? How can you take that and then turn that and make that for God's glory? Couples in this church, Younger couples need to hear your story. They need to hear about what you went through and how that maybe they can avoid a similar thing that could happen. But I want you to know, 
regardless of your situation, that God sent Jesus to take the punishment that you deserve and I deserve. And the gospel says that Jesus loves his people, his bride. And he offers forgiveness. And if any of us were able to be everything that God wants us to be all in a moment, we would all fail and fall and cut short. But we all struggle. And we've all made bad choices and bad decisions. So my encouragement to you is to allow God to redeem that, to turn to Jesus and make him your delight, make him your joy. And from here on out, use that for his glory and his honor. My encouragement for those who are in a tough marriage right now and you're thinking, you know what, if you just only knew my situation. Well, let's touch on a few of exceptions that, that scripture gives us for divorce. And in fact, if you read in Matthew 5, what I alluded to a few minutes ago, verse 32, Matthew adds some words that Mark did not add in this text. Let's read that together. It says, but I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, and here's the part that Mark didn't say, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So the question is, as we look at this, is why didn't Mark mention this exception clause as it has become, become known as over time? Why did not Mark not mention that? Well, I think for a couple of reasons here. Uh, first of all, let's, let's remember this idea of sexual immorality. Uh, this is more than just adultery. It included, in the Old Testament, this word includes, and in the Greek it includes homosexuality, bestiality, prostitution. Now think back to the Mosaic Law for a second, if you know the passages from Leviticus. For a person who committed any of those, those things I just said, do you know what the penalty of that was? It was death. Under the Mosaic law, death was the penalty for those things. And so if during the time of Jesus, even though the Romans allowed the Jews to practice their religion, they would not allow them to uh, fully uh, use everything at the law's disposal, meaning they could not kill someone or kill a woman or a man for committing adultery. And so during this time, uh, the people were allotted this divorce. And so this idea of a divorce for immorality was kind of a given because under the law, you had been killed. And so this was kind of a concession for that. And so, you know, that, that was a good thing, right? That, that uh, we, we don't have to terminate marriages by death anymore, but divorce is an option for these things that happen. Um, in, in life. So Jesus says that divorce should not be an option except for marital infidelity, unfaithfulness, sexual immorality. And so I think the point is, you know, how big a deal is this that in the Old Testament this would be punished by death? It's an incredible standard. And this is a really, really big deal to Jesus. And it's a really big deal in the Bible. And it should be a really big deal for his people. And so some people try to make a big deal about the fact that that Mark left this out. Why did Mark leave this expression out? But again, I, I believe that it was pretty much taken for granted during this time period. So Jesus permitted divorce and remarriage, and he says for one reason here, sexual immorality. So Jesus gives you this right. God has given the Christian the clearance to divorce an unfaithful spouse. God has given the Christian the clearance to divorce an unfaithful spouse. A person who lives in adultery they give evidence to the fact that they don't really know Jesus. They don't have a relationship with Jesus. Think about that for a second. So what's the purpose of marriage again? The picture, 
is to point people to Jesus, to show Jesus to the world. Here you're living with someone who is constantly committing adultery. They're living in this lifestyle. What is this saying about Jesus and his love for his church? I think that's what the Bible calls unequally yoked because this person may claim to be a Christian, but their actions are saying something totally different. And so this is not representing Jesus and his church. And I think that's why that, that Jesus gives this exception for immorality and for adultery because you can't represent Jesus in a situation like that. But at the same time, I do want to say this. I do want to say that I, I, I don't think the wise thing to do is if your spouse has an adulterous affair, be like, oh, Jesus said it, you're out of here, see ya, and, I, and we're divorcing. I mean, I think it's, it's wise to, to begin to work through and try to get wise counseling and get help in this situation. I don't think Jesus is saying the, the, the first time someone sins means that you just divorce. Now, I think you have that right, you do have that right, but I don't think it's necessarily always the wise thing to do. I think about even people who I've counseled in my own ministry. Uh, many of you have met my friend Jeff Oldham. He's been here and spoke to the guys before, spoke in church here before also. But when I met Jeff, I mean, he, he was a broken man. He, he had had multiple, I mean, I multiple uh, affairs on his wife. And he was, um, and his wife had separated from him. Divorce was pending. It was loom, looming down the road. And Jeff wouldn't mind me sharing this. He probably shared a lot of this story when he was here. But uh, when I first met Jeff, um, they were they had the date set. The papers were already filed. It was it was going through. And and me and another guy named Barry, we began to work with Jeff and, and talk to Jeff. And and Jeff had made a profession of faith as a as a kid, like a lot of people do in the South and growing up in Texas, conservative area. He had made a profession of faith, but he didn't know Jesus, and his lifestyle indicated that he didn't know Jesus and we were in the the middle school it was a high school the freshman center of Lake Hollins freshman center there in Lake Hollins in Dallas Texas and I remember as clear as if it was today that uh, here big old six foot four guy and he's just burdened under his sin his regret and and trying to fill this void in his life through these affairs and and it just had broken him and he just lay down in the middle of the gym and just begin to sob like a baby for his sin. And it was amazing. It wasn't an overnight that God changed he and Amy's life, but it began the process because he repented of his sin. He turned to Jesus. And then I had the privilege, Michelle and I and our kids and his kids and Amy, his wife, a few months later, three or four months later, we had a private baptism in our church there in Dallas one night and walked him into the baptistry and baptized this guy. What, what amazing story of redemption. What amazing story. And God can take the pain and the hurt that you have suffered and redeem that for his glory. And so if you're the offender, if you've been in that situation, you're the offender, and you've never, ever made that right, I challenge you to make that right, to have that talk to seek help, seek counseling. And get some people around you. Ladies, guys, get some people around you who can keep you accountable. Can keep you following after Jesus with your whole heart. And maybe you're here and you, you've been in that situation and you divorced and you've remarried and you're thinking, well, what do I do? You know, what, what, what's, what, what should I do here? 
Here's what I, I encourage you to do if you've never done this. If you're newer to church, maybe you've never been confronted with this. I encourage you to talk to your current spouse and maybe just just confess that, that how bad you messed up if you were the offender in that relationship that fell apart or those relationships that fell apart. Just have a heart-to-heart with your spouse currently and say, you know, I wasn't living the way that I should have lived. I wasn't obeying God the way I should have obeyed. And if you were a Christian, conf- uh, hopefully you've confessed that to, to God at this point already. And then maybe if the circumstances are correct and right, that, that maybe you could even go back to your former spouse and apologize and admit your moral failure in that and say, you know what, I'm just going to own it, that I was not the kind of wife or the kind of husband that I should have been. And just make amends. There's just something incredible about just allowing God just to remove that guilt and that frustration and that hurt that you've caused over the years. That's a tough thing to do. And I know some of you in here have told me you've done that. And, and what a big step for healing. And then the other exception that God gives in Scripture, and, and this is a little bit debatable. I'll tell you how I feel about it. And then um, you can read other people. And I've put links in the app, actually, for if you want to read more. In 1 Corinthians 7, 15, Paul writes, But if the unbeliever, unbelieving partner separates, so this is in a case where as, as, as a Christian married to a non-Christian, maybe one person became a Christian after the, the, you know, the marriage. They learned about Jesus. They came to him. And the other spouse doesn't come to Christ. And he says, this other person's unbeliever, and they leave you, he says, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So he's saying, if, if you're, you're, you're in this relationship and it's not equally yoked, you're, you can't paint the accurate picture of Jesus because of the spouse who doesn't know Jesus. And this person says, I'm out of here. I don't want to be married to you anymore. And they leave. I believe what scripture says, then that frees you then at that point to be able to go and divorce and to remarry. Some people will say, no, you shouldn't remarry. I believe scripture teaches that that freedom involves being able to remarry at that point. Would, would, does, Paul makes it clear. We talked about this in 1 Corinthians. Does it mean that the believing spouse leaves the unbelieving spouse? Paul says that you should stay in that marriage and continue to work for the gospel and try to, to just love that person through the power of Jesus and that person may come to know Jesus Christ as their savior through your sweet spirit, through your serving attitude, through your love for Jesus and the way that you act in that relationship. And so if you find yourself there today in that kind of marriage that you're married to an unbeliever, don't quit, don't give up. Don't daydream about, man, if I only had a better marriage, my life would be so much more fulfilling and so much more happy. God has put you in the situation where he has you. He's allowed you to be there. And he's told you in his word that you can redeem that situation no matter how hard it is. And again, if, if your personal happiness is the goal, then it only makes sense to say, man, I hope he gets out of here and leaves me quick because I'm ready to move on with my life, right? I, I need some freedom here. And so maybe you're doing things to actually discourage him and make him leave you. But that's not what scripture says. We should be like Jesus and we should love and want to exemplify Jesus Christ through our life. And so Paul reveals that if an unbeliever abandons or divorces a believer, that believer is free to remarry. Well, that's a lot, lot to digest. It is. It, it's, it's so countercultural, it's almost 
hard even as Christians to sit here and, and hear some of this stuff because we've been so conditioned by the world's way of thinking when it comes to our, our happiness, our fulfillment, our pleasure. And so we, we had to ask the Holy Spirit just to change our heart through the power of his word to help us see that marriage is not about you. Your marriage is not about you. Your singleness is not about you. It's all about Jesus. It's all about reflecting him and glorifying him. And so let me, let me ask you, honestly and, and pointedly, what needs to happen in your marriage for you to reveal Jesus and paint a better picture of Jesus? What couple things need to happen in your marriage to get to your purpose of why you're even in that marriage in the first place? And single person, don't, don't be disconnected from this. You never know, one, what's down the road in front of you. And so you need to remember this because it'd be so easy sometimes when you're single that, that you want, you know, the first guy who comes along who is handsome or the first woman who uh, is, you know, you seem like there's some attraction there and you're like, well, wow, man, they're for me. And we kind of just throw our faith out the window because all of a sudden we have companionship, which is very important, and we want companionship. We desire companionship. God created us to want companionship, but not at the expense of our purpose. And so be careful that you don't compromise your faith and your pursuit of Jesus in a relationship. And so I'm, I ask you to know the word, be in the word. Allow God to daily remind you of your mission and purpose in, in this world. Because that vision, that, that mission will easily, easily leak out and be gone daily. If you're not in God's word asking the Holy Spirit to remind you. God, help me to, to remember today, I'm broken. And my default every single time is going to be my way, my happiness, my fulfillment. And God, I pray that you'll allow me to die to myself, to take up my cross today and follow you. And in your marriage, if you're in a difficult marriage, ask the Holy Spirit to give you the strength to live out the words of Scripture, to make him known, to paint a picture of him that reveals his goodness and his grace. Will you do that? Will you do that honestly? In our class today, we ended up kind of on that note. Because so many times we sit here and we hear a message. We go to a Bible study. We do a K group. And we're like, oh, yeah, that's good. And then we walk out and it's like to the next thing immediately, right? Think of a couple things right now. Maybe even jot them down. What can you do to paint a better picture of Jesus Christ? What can you do to make him known through the way that you interact with your spouse? the way that you conduct your life. God not only commands it, the awesome thing is he gives us the power to do it through the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father God, we admit we're, we're sinful and we're weak and we like comfort, we like power, we like control, we like influence, we like to make ourselves look better than we really are. We like to feel significant and important. And so many times we default to these things, over following you and denying ourselves. And God, I pray that just very foundationally that the Christians in here, those who truly know you, will begin to cultivate a relationship with you that 
where they open their Bible daily. They pray to you. They seek you and seek your power to live this life that's so much beyond their ability to live unless you're living through them. God, I pray for those who are discouraged right now. They feel like maybe they're doing all the right things in their marriage or in their life, and it just it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't make them happy, God. Help them to remember what you did for us, Jesus on the cross. You left your glory. You left your power. You left your comforts of heaven. And you came and you died a cruel and painful death so that we could have salvation. And God, help us to remember in those moments of suffering, those moments of struggle, those moments of dying to our own will and and putting our spouse's best above our own. God, help us to remember in those moments that we're ultimately resembling you and representing you and living the way you called us to live, God. Help us to imitate you and live lives of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. In Jesus' name we pray.